another person, but we'll, we'll make it work. Well, welcome to today's uh, edition of Our Outside View. I'm Helen Harrell, and today I'm excited to speak with Reverend Forrest Gilmore, who is the Executive Director of Shalom Community Center here in Bloomington, Indiana. Uh, welcome, Forrest. Thank you. Thank you. Good to talk to you. It's nice to see you again, actually. It's been a yeah. few years, and of course I read about you in the paper and everything, because you <laughs> and Shalom do a lot of really wonderful things for the community. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself first. Are you from Bloomington or Indiana? Or I am not. I'm not. I, I uh, uh, grew up in New York State and uh, lived there for much of my all of my childhood. Went to went to college out there as well, and then um, went to California for seminary, and so was in seminary and served served a church um, out there, and um, and then went back to uh, the East Coast for a while, but I've been in uh, Indiana for now, uh, just just shy of a decade, it'll be a decade this summer, and I came to Bloomington in particular because of because um, uh, of some family connections and, mm-hmm. and, and here, so that's how that's And how so I'm you're here. still here doing good works? Yeah. Well, yeah. I think the community's glad you're here. I'm also from, well, I was born in Wisconsin, but I grew up in New York. I, mean, uh-huh. I grew up in the city in Brooklyn. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, then I went, my parents, we moved to Kansas City where I went to high school. And mm-hmm. then I ended up here. Long story how I ended up here. I would have never thought of being in Indiana. But <laughs> I've been here almost 40 years now. So that's, I think, over half my life now. Uh-huh. So <laughs> it's been a while. You've settled. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, well, tell me a little bit about um, the Shalom Center itself. How, how did it come about? Wasn't it founded originally in a, in a church here, a local church? or? Yeah, yeah, we're 19 years old, uh, a little bit, 19 and a half almost now. Um, we uh, grew up, uh, we, I'm thinking about adulthood, we're just entering into adulthood with 19 and a half. <laughs> but uh, we, we uh, yeah, did start um, with a, we started with a, like a kernel of a thought, you know, a vision, kind of a feeling which was uh, seeing people uh, at downtown and, and other places in the community and having no place to go, no mm-hmm. safe respite. You know, many of the people we work with are uh, ostracized and alienated and, um, and in some cases even despised. Uh, and so we, uh, there was this kind of uh, longing to kind of create safety and uh, care uh, for people in those situations. So. The First United Methodist Church, in partnership with some other people in the community, um, created, opened a room uh, in their in their uh, building, in their church, and invited people in. You know, they had some phones and uh, coffee and bagels and donuts, I think, and a newspaper, mm-hmm. and just kind of went from there. And, I remember those days, actually. I, of course, growing up in a big metropolitan area, I saw a lot of homeless people. Sure. Coming here, I didn't see so many. Mm-hmm. But I know in the last few years, it's just grown exponentially how many people are can cannot afford housing or anything, actually. Yeah. Um, so you moved. When did you move? Now, you're in a, we're now sitting in a, a much bigger building. It's not in a church any longer. And, yeah. um it's uh do, do you own the building outright we do actually we just uh just fully closed out a mortgage uh about a year ago that's so, wonderful so it's uh it's fully in our uh possession if you will <laughs> right now so so we're really lucky and one of the things that was great we had a number of donors that came through and supporters that came through to do that um so but uh we were spending about twenty one thousand dollars a year on on contract and later mortgage payments and um, so now all of that money is now going back into the into client services and supports for our for our guests. What kind of services do you have here? I mean, I've, I've actually I have to honestly say I've never been here before, 
and I came through the building and I saw that you had uh, laundry facilities and obviously mm-hmm. foods for there's food available and things what what other things do you offer people yeah our, our seems like a very friendly place everybody was really friendly and nice good good I'm <laughs> glad to hear that yeah she'll, I mean we we um again started with this vision of creating care you know for people who um, often have no safe place to go and and or very few safe places to go and so so we have this kind of emergency response you know Shalom has grown a lot in the almost 20 years that we've been around um, that's a good and bad thing yeah isn't yeah it? yeah well it's good in the services <laughs> that right. we provided um, uh, not so much in the clients uh, the, and the people who need need more help, um, which is uh, is an ongoing challenge. But um, we, uh, um, you know, st- uh, started with the most basic needs. You know, um, shelter, food, uh, restrooms, mm-hmm. um, showers, laundry, a safe place to put your things. Are you open twenty four hours? We're open just uh, right now. We're open seven days a week, but from eight to four. Eight so, to four. So, well, Sh- the Shalom Center itself, which is the day center, mm-hmm. we also have an overnight shelter called Friends Place on a, at a different location that is uh, open from from about five till about eight in the morning. So, so how many employees do you have to handle all that? Are they volunteers? Uh, or we are have a lot employees? of volunteers. Yeah. Yeah, we also, uh, we didn't even get into it, but more recently now we have a street outreach program. We have several housing programs right now. Our permanent supportive housing program has um, more than 100 people with disabilities in housing, formerly homeless people with disabilities. So there's a lot going on, you know, three different locations now, um, uh, all, uh, and we really moved towards solutions a lot. We've really expanded into solutions and helping people get back home, basically. Mm -hmm. So, but right now we um, are, I believe we have uh, 29 employees somewhere in that range at this moment and um, uh, doing everything from cooking to custodial to case management to some of the administrative roles here, uh, but all kind of supporting um, the organization to do its work to help people in need. It, well, that's a wonderful mission for sure. Um, it's, it, it's overwhelming to me. I, I wonder... Um, in Bloomington, are there things that you know? You read a lot of articles if you're if you're local Bloomingtonian and you read the paper. There's a lot of articles about how there's just not enough affordable housing in this town. Yeah. What can be done to change that? I mean, are are efforts being made? I know there are some now apartments that, and there's a lot of Section Eight housing. I know. Yeah. And there's some now affordable apartments for people, but it seems like there's never enough. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a uh, challenging issue, um, and uh, and there's a lot of complexity to affordable issues. Actually, one of the things that's really interesting is that homelessness um, is a relatively new kind of sociological phenomenon. We've always had people who are homeless uh, going back as you know as far back as time, perhaps. But, I think so. But, but, I think uh, so. But um, we what we. Um, but what we know is that over the last 40 years, starting starting in the late 70s, early 80s, we started to see a real... Well, we had a slight interruption there, so we will just continue with our interview. I'm speaking with... I'm, um, I'm Helen Harrell on our outside view, and I'm speaking with Forrest Gilmore, Reverend Forrest Gilmore, who is the executive director of the Shalom Center. And I think we were talking about the increase in need. Yeah. We and the complexities the, of city government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
We were talking about uh, affordable housing and homelessness, and and um, and one of the things I think that's really important for people to know is that homelessness has be kind of become has is a relatively new phenomena as mm -hmm. a sociological problem, as a national crisis. And or recognized as yeah, such, perhaps. Yeah. Well, definitely, even on the numbers, like the right. numbers, it's it's uh, have spiked since the early early eighties, and so we did see these graphs of big increases in in need and demand starting around the early eighties, and that's been growing uh, ever since. And so, um, so uh, in homelessness, and so one of the things we know is that part of the challenge around homelessness as we've seen uh, is, a, is the issue of affordable housing. That that's a big impact. Housing affordability uh, became more and more challenging for people and that directly correlates with, with homelessness and the increase in homelessness. And so that affects us nationally, but also it's a national problem that's affecting us locally. And so, you know, there are some things on a national level that we don't have the capacity to change except through our advocacy on a national level. Mm -hmm. But there might be some things locally that we can do, and among those is supporting, um, you know, uh, uh, supporting affordability, housing affordability in our community, and making sure that we have a, a broad spectrum of housing options for people, um, from people with the lowest level of poverty, you know, um, up through uh, certainly middle class and beyond. But uh, but we want to make sure that everyone can can afford a home to live into and. How to do that's complicated, but but there are definitely things we can do. Do you have educational programs here, or referrals for educational programs? Because I know a lot of a lot of times people are are jobless because they don't they they aren't qualified for a lot of jobs now. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, I know that there's a lot of a lot of issues and aspects to being homeless. Sure. Um, not just one thing, not not needing a job or whatever. But I know that some of it, I think some people have just been, like the technology field, for instance, a lot of people haven't paid any attention to that and know that there are a lot of jobs available, mm -hmm. even even lower paying and some higher paying jobs in the technology, but they aren't aware of it and they don't have the training. Mm -hmm. um, do you have that kind of referral service? I mean, we work with, of course, with um, with adult education in our mm -hmm. school, in our community, um, but a lot of the, you know, uh, people we work with are, um, they're dealing with poverty, but they're also dealing with extreme poverty. Most of the folks we work with are, uh, on the even lower end they have of nothing. poverty. They're, they have nothing. Their, their issues are really severe and, mm -hmm. and challenging. And so there's lots of complexities to that. Um, and so, um, so we certainly work with educational support and that, and that kind of thing, but in many cases, survival is coming first. <laughs> I was going to say yeah. probably the immediate needs of clothing and shelter and food. Yeah. And homes, you know, mm -hmm. just helping them actually stabilize. We work with a, a model uh, that we call Housing First, which is the idea that um, people need to have that stability of a home uh, before they can actually advance. Um, there's lots of uh, evidence now that actually supporting people to move into a home as opposed to um, trying to fix their problems while, while they're in homelessness is a lot uh, more effective, um, a lot uh, faster, and certainly not perfect. Nothing's perfect uh, in a world that people are dealing with such challenges. But, but what about found. the addiction issue? Yeah. Are there, do you have? Do you accept people that have addiction issues? Yeah, we're a low. As barrier. I know, some shelters sure. don't. Yeah, we're we're uh, a low barrier shelter, and so we work with people who who have active addictions, mm -hmm. uh, who are unmedicated, mentally ill. Um, 
and uh, for some simply simple core reasons, one is is engagement is mm-hmm. is how do you engage people if you don't, and how do you work with people if if you don't allow them in your facilities. There's also actually quite a bit of evidence that shows that uh, sobriety mandated programs versus uh, non-mandated programs don't have any improvement in people's substance use disorder. That the act of mandating um, uh, sobriety doesn't fix them. It doesn't. No. It doesn't make them better. No, it, people uh, have to really yeah. want to kick a habit, so to speak. Uh, they want yeah. to. Yeah, although it's even more and complicated than that. And it's more, it's more that, complicated. You know? <laughs> yeah, I actually like to equate it to some degree to breathing. You know, yes. that when you have a substance use disorder, uh, severe substance use disorder, it's kind of like breathing. You know, any of us can try and hold our breath for a, a while. You know, we can, we can be really committed. We can really want to hold our breath and we can be really committed to doing it. But at some point, the body takes over the mind and mm-hmm. kicks in and forces us to breathe. And there's really not much we can do that than that. And substance use disorder is a lot like that. There's mm-hmm. a point at which the body's need for the substance takes over the mind's determination. Uh, and so that's why it's so challenging for people to get, uh, to get free of, um, uh, or you know, uh, to get out of drug use that's harmful to them. It's well, very, very complicated. Back in the uh, 70s and 80s, I was, uh, well, I'm a clinical, clinical psychologist, and I worked with drug rehab in Philadelphia sure. and sure. in Washington, D.C. And I saw that the issues were so multifaceted. Yeah. And one of the things that frustrated me a lot, though, was when uh, somebody, a family member would want to actually become, you know, kick the addiction and try to get on that straight and narrow path and change their lives around. And then there weren't necessarily agencies to help them. Mm-hmm. Or they, they take the children away and they, they split up the family. And there were just all these complicated issues that did not contribute yeah. to healing yeah. and recovery. Yeah. So I, I know that it's a very complex issue and it's, it's very admirable that this shelter yeah, considers have, all those aspects of people. Yeah, we have a belief, I think, uh, which I think is false, is that uh, the way that people recover is through uh, suffering. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not our belief that that's how people recover. They recover through proper care, through proper medical care. They recover through compassion. They re- recover through stability. They recover through um, support. And, um, and so that's what we attempt to do, at knowing that recovery is rare in some cases. It's difficult. It's hard. And, um, and that when we really look at the numbers and, you know, recovery is a very, for people with severe substance use disorder, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to get there. It doesn't happen a lot. And people, I think there's an assumption that, uh, that if you just put your mind to it, it's going to happen. And it's, no, it doesn't work way, that way. It's way more complicated. Because it's physical and psychological. Absol- absolutely. A lot, of, a lot of people and don't, don't realize that. They think, oh, well, they can just stop drinking or they can just stop this or that. No, yeah. it's not that easy because yeah. the body takes over, as you said. Yeah. Um, do you find that when people move into their own little apartment or home that they actually are... It's easier for them to... Uh, kind of uh, recover from addiction or do they fall back into habits being kind of isolated because they live alone? Um, I mean, again, every person is different, right? Um, but we find that generally speaking, the stability of a home is, is a step in the right direction for people. 
that um, that it moves the needle in, in the favor and improves the odds that they um, can do better and can stabilize. It doesn't necessarily, it's not a magic bullet or whatever, you know, it doesn't magic wand or it doesn't solve all kinds of things, but it certainly improves the odds for people. And, and, it, and it has another factor, which is it ends homelessness. <laughs> yes, that's so, true. So, you know, these are, you know, homelessness, again, is a varied issue. Not everyone needs the same response. Mm-hmm. Um, so we particularly target that uh, housing first as a program at chronically homeless people, people who live on the streets uh, indefinitely, all have disabilities, and um, honestly die on the streets without intervention. So the average age of death of a chronically homeless person is 47 years old. So we know that our old models of trying to help uh, chronically homeless people failed miserably. And um, Housing First uh, is an opportunity to actually bring that chronic homelessness number down to, uh, to zero, ideally, to really put, to dramatically reduce those numbers. And we've seen that happening nationally you know, as we've reinvested in Housing First or invested in Housing First as a country, our um, chronic homeless numbers and street homeless numbers are dropping. Well, maybe that's a good sign. I'm sure it's small, but um, what is your demographic kind of, do you see more young people, more older people, meaning I mean older, like 40s, 50s, not my age, and um, or families as opposed to single people? Yeah, it's a mix. Um, so right now in our community, about 40% of the people experiencing homelessness are in families, um, give or take 35 to 40%, it varies. Um, so uh, families with dependent children. That's uh, so rough. That's so stressful. I yeah. mean, you can't even imagine the stress. Yeah, and that fits about national numbers. That's pretty close to national numbers. Um, chronically homeless represents between 10 and 20%, depending on the year, varies. So I think we're somewhere in the 15% range right now um, of the total and then and then the rest are generally single adults um, that are not chronically homeless uh, you know dealing with unemployment issues or uh, underemployment or um, you know fires could be domestic violence mm-hmm. uh, lots of variables variables there we've seen a lot of um, challenges most recently in the last few years especially with opioids, uh, and we're also seeing some pretty serious challenges with meth uh, re-emerging. Meth uh, kind of was in the background for a while, but it seems to uh, be coming to the forefront again. Well, there was actually a national article yesterday that puts Indiana, the capital of meth industry in the the country. Isn't that a wonderful achievement for Indiana? Yeah, particularly noting the area in and around Evansville as being a pretty serious issue, but we're Definitely seeing, you know, everybody talks about opioids right now, and uh, one of the things we're seeing is that meth is actually starting to, and that's the way substance use disorder works. It shifts, it changes, it moves. Whatever people really, well, whatever's pumped into the system. Yeah. Whoever yeah, provides you that. And whatever's, you know, it, it, yeah, it changes and costs change. And what about, what changes. about veterans? Uh, do you work with the VA here? I'm surprised. Yeah, I do, actually. I'm yeah. surprised the VA doesn't have more. I don't know how much they work with the homeless. Yeah, there are actually, an awful lot of veterans. I mean, are. the VA's done a pretty remarkable program over at least the last decade um, called, they call it HUD-VASH, which is a partnership mm-hmm. between the VA um, and HUD uh, oh, okay. to house homeless veterans. And um, the numbers have dropped dramatically in terms of the number of homeless veterans through that program. So it's been really pr- impressive. And we work with them here, um, as well as the VA, uh, without the outside of the HUD VASH program to help people move into housing. I think right now there's about 80 uh, 
formerly homeless vets in our community that are now housed through that HUD-VASH program. Mm -hmm. And we have about, oh, about 15 or so that, that are still homeless currently on any given day. So we haven't hit zero, but we've actually uh, are way ahead of the national numbers, so, which is about 11%. So we're around 4%, so we're doing pretty well. I know you mentioned domestic violence situations, which creates homelessness. And frequently we think of that being women. I would say it's probably more the majority are women that end up homeless due to that. And I'm sure you interact with Middleway. Sure. Because this this shelter, Shalom, would not necessarily be a safety shelter. Uh, it's, it's absolutely not a domestic violence shelter, mm -hmm. and uh, it doesn't offer the um, isolation that a domestic violence shelter could. We're very public, open space, so mm -hmm. so, uh, and we work with a lot of people with the, who are currently experiencing domestic violence or have experienced domestic violence. Um, you know, I just saw some numbers uh, yesterday. Um, uh, in a different part of the country, but they assessed the number of women who reported sexual violence in their history, and it was something like, it was, uh, I think the number was 98% reported sexual violence in their in their history, homeless women. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so it's extraordinarily high uh, um, uh, factor um, for, for women who are experiencing homelessness. Uh, and I don't have the numbers in men, but men also experience a significant amount of um, uh, violence too. Yeah, they do. You just don't hear about it quite as much. Yeah. But um, yeah. And partly that's men's fault. They, they don't want, they're too ashamed to come forward and talk about it, but I think that's changing some. Let's talk about what city government can do sure. to help. What they do, what they have done, uh, and what more can be done. Yeah, sure. Because I know there's an attitude. You know, a lot of people have an attitude they're afraid of the homeless. Uh, they kind of want them out of sight and out of mind, and they say, well, there's a center over there. It helps them. That's fine. Yeah. And then dismiss it. Um, yeah. And it seems to me maybe city government politics, they could help with that, that image. Yeah. I mean, I don't... Um, uh, yeah, sometimes we're allies with city government, and sometimes we're in, in struggles <laughs> with city government about... Um, their choices uh, and and decisions, and so that's that's always a, a, a touchy issue. Um, we try to work together. The city, um, in many ways, is very supportive for Shalom. Mm -hmm. They they uh, and the county government both have provided uh, substantial. Is funds. it a United Way agency? Is what? Is it under the United Way umbrella, Shalom? It, oh yeah, yeah. yeah we okay. are a United Way agency. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, since about 2004, 2005, okay. so uh, we've been with them for a long so time. So people can donate to it through the United Way also. Absolutely. See, I'm a United yeah. Way family. My dad was a CEO with United Way for like 50 years, so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I grew up in that whole atmosphere. Back then yeah. we had the Red Cross for help and the Salvation Army, and but there weren't a lot of centers for homelessness back in the 40s, mm -hmm. 50s, 60s. Yeah, yeah, again, you know, a lot of uh, housing really uh, was much more available and um, affordable uh, and really took a spike and become a significant issue in the, again, in the well, I noticed, 80s. and I don't know if this is statistical or just my observation, but it seemed like back when I was growing up in the 40s and 50s that um, homelessness was seen as a result of the war, mm -hmm. the, the big war, World War yeah. II, and then the Korean War. And a lot of it was veterans. And then, well, there's always some people that just, you know, you just have to feed them and take care of them because they never can do anything. That was kind of sure. the attitude. And I think the attitude is changing now that a lot of people 
they end up homeless, not doing really any fault of their own. Um, yeah, I, I'm generally not a fan of talking about fault too much because I just think judgment doesn't help a lot. But, and there's uh, too many causes and issues. Yeah, um, but um, in in general, uh, homelessness uh, can be broken down into two kind of basic groups. One is chronically homeless, and that's usually uh, that's long-term homeless due to disability and usually very complicated, lots of mental illness, uh, substance use disorders often in there, physical disabilities, something we call trimorbidity, where people have all three, mm-hmm. and uh, which can be deadly. Um, but there's also, you know, a good 80% of uh, homelessness that's kind of more in what we call transitional, which is short term, you know, um, and it's due to poverty, it's mm-hmm. due to affordable housing, it's due to unemployment, it's uh, due to uh, family emergencies, you know, how, uh, floods, earthquakes, houses burning down. You Natural know. causes as well, yes. Yeah, yeah. and so, um, uh, you know, medical costs, all, you know, all these things that kind of can, can uh, uh, you know, and health healthcare crises can all kind of, kind of come in and strike a person. Well, I think we have to face the fact that given the times, given the economy, given the government, a lot of people are just a couple paychecks away from homelessness. Yeah. And that's terrifying. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. Did you say the numbers are going down in Bloomington as far as the number of homeless? No. Uh, nationally, they are a little nationally. bit, although the last two years they've increased. We've looked at homeless numbers in Bloomington. We've been counting since about 2007. Mm-hmm. And um, they've increased by about 80 people per day uh, over the course of that decade. And where are they coming from? Outside of Indiana, outside of Bloomington, out just well, residents that experience trauma, as we've been talking I mean, about. I mean, the vast majority are coming right here from Monroe County. So, <laughs> so uh, I think that's uh, something that people uh, forget when we talk about homelessness. And that raises that, a few issues. As we we have a pretty severe severe poverty problem here mm-hmm. in in our county. We have one of the worst poverty, uh, uh, you know, levels of poverty in 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 Monroe County, and I think a lot of people. Uh, tend to assume that poverty is somewhere else, but mm-hmm. actually one of the, we have among the highest rates of poverty right here in our county. So, um, Well, I think so one of the problems here that has always upset me is that there, there's the university, which there's like a thousand millionaires beyond Bloomington, I believe. And then there's the university, which the upper echelon of Bloomington, of IU is paid very well. Mm-hmm. Paid very well, then the people below are not, not paid. And IU really controls wages. Mm-hmm. across the board because all the industry and everything competes with those wages mm-hmm. and I think I mean there are there are employed people at IU that that get food stamps and need mm-hmm. help because they aren't making enough money mm-hmm. so the wages are an issue yeah wages so, are definitely an issue but people think because I use there and there's all these well-paid people there that there's no poverty but yeah. they're not thinking about the county they're not thinking about the other Bloomington yeah there's two Bloomingtons I mean actually the most the highest poverty rate we have in our in our um state is, uh, or in our county, is in Bloomington Township. That has the highest uh, level of poverty, and most people think of, you know, maybe the edges of the county or the or the south end the of the county, areas. but it's actually Bloomington Township that, that has the highest rate of poverty. Certainly some of that's influenced by the student population, yes. um, uh, which in many cases that poverty can be totally legitimate, you know, mm-hmm. that, that people in school are are impoverished but um i knew a lot of poor graduate students for sure (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely 
So it's, a, you know, it's mixed. Um, the university is certainly an economic driver in the community, and that's really valuable. Um, but we do have, it, it does uh, uh, drive up housing costs. It does um, lead to um, when people are not paid well that work through the university, it does create two Bloomingtons and, and uh, does create this economic divide. And so um, trying to work towards, you know, more broad-based prosperity is really important. Does the university do anything to help with the, with the homelessness and homeless population and Shalom in particular or anything? Do they? We get some support. Certainly there's, there's um, you know, a workplace campaign for the United Way that, that supports Shalom and other agencies. Um, the social work school provides a lot of interns. We get a lot of volunteers from IU. Um, there's uh, and there's always opportunities for more. One of the things I love about Notre Dame is they've really adopted uh, the Center for Homelessness in their in their Center for the Homeless in their city up uh, up in South Bend and, and have really created a um, an amazing uh, high high quality um, service provi- you know service provider up there. And I would love to see some kind of direct partnership between the university and. Uh, and um, Shalom, similar to, to how Notre Dame has taken on that partnership mm-hmm. with the Center for the Homeless. So there's always opportunities to do more. Yes. Well, back to city government again. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what, can, what can city government do that they're not doing? I yeah, know, that, I know there are a lot of people in city government that are very caring people and do contribute. Yeah, yeah it's a good question. Um, again, a lot of our challenges are in some ways national. Um, right now, we're in the middle of um, the... Uh, UDO, which revision of the UDO, the Unified Development Ordinance, which is um, a pretty uh, challenging debate for some people about what should be in that. That's what regulates how housing is developed in our community. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that uh, comes to that, well, we know a couple of things. One is we know Bloomington has about the worst housing affordability in the state. Maybe the worst yes. varies, but generally speaking, we have really really rough housing affordability here in, in our in our city and in our t- in our county. Um, the other thing we know is that generally progressive cities across the country have housing affordability issues. Mm-hmm. That this is a common f- issue in progressive cities. And so we got to look at ourselves and say what are we doing that's creating this aff- affordability issue and recognize that if we keep doing things exactly the same way we've always been doing them we're going to continue to uh, uh, create the same problems. And so, so this is where the UDO comes in because um, the development ordinance is a factor in, in how housing is built and uh, how much housing is available and what kind of housing is available. And so there's some things in that that um, we can really uh, do to change the conversation. Um, one of those is that uh, right now the um, UDO proposal offers uh, density bonuses for people building um, uh, specifically subsidized housing, affordable housing, you know, creating uh, opportunities for the buildings to be bigger or have um, more units within them uh, to make it affordable for the developer so they actually can build and, and uh, you know, whoever the builder, so they can actually... Um, you know, be able to, to put these things up and, and uh, to create homes for people that people can actually afford. Another thing that's um, 
really important, I think, is kind of more of a streamlined process of uh, housing. So, so uh, for um, development, so that people can um, more readily know what to expect when they start to apply for housing. So mm -hmm. a builder can have a good sense of what they're doing. Um, there's a really interesting thing too out in South Bend where um, uh, people. Uh, judge the mayor there, um, created like a liaison. You know, he's in the news now. Everybody's talking right. about. I know. Um, yeah, <laughs> running for president and all. But he created this liaison um, that took any builder through the process of how to get through the whole permitting process to build a home and made, made that much more uh, navigable for the average ordinary person who just wants to, you know, do something with their home um, and made that more accessible. So because it, it's a, it's a, swath of regulations I'm sure I'm which sure. which and uh, and probably the most challenging one right now I think and the most controversial is uh, is for uh, building the missing middle of housing there's a there's a move to um, allow within uh, single-family neighborhoods to have a, a, a small number of multi-family housing uh, two bedrooms three two part two um, duplexes triplexes mm -hmm. and quadplexes within the neighborhoods and this is really controversial. Uh, there's a lot of people who don't want, think it's going to destroy their neighborhoods. I'm not one of those people. Uh, I tend to think that communities, our communities are segregated right now. And one of the ways we segregate our communities is through housing. So people are not able to, you know, maybe 20 years ago, those single family homes were affordable for people, but now they're not, they're the outrageous. $250,000 to move into a neighborhood, 200, 200, is not affordable to the average um, person in our community. Certainly so, not to someone who's been homeless and is trying oh to gosh, kind of climb yeah. their way out of that situation, yeah. no. Yeah, and so, or even middle, even somebody who's making the area median income in our mm -hmm. community. That's right. You know? So how do you, how do you create, uh, so that creates segregation, so, mm -hmm. and we have- Economic a, and racial segregation, and yes. Absolutely, and so, and we see that in our schools where we have our communities are very divided, uh, in our schools where we have uh, wealthier people in some schools and poorer people in other schools and that's massive it's one of these things we don't talk about in our city is that we have a massive sig uh, significant economic segregation and racial segregation problem in our city our oh, lovely, we definitely do our lovely progressive city of bloomington you know and the same thing as we have housing segregation people, oh, people have ideals and then there's reality yeah. and they don't frequently want to bring those together yeah. And what people forget, and I, I think this is as hard as they, they want to protect their thing, you know, and protect their homes and all that and kind of thing. But what, what people don't forget is that having um, integrated communities, inclusive communities. Um, it benefits everyone. It benefits everyone. It we, brings oh, people yeah. up and it might in some ways level some other people out a little bit. Well, it also, <laughs> it creates engagement. It creates, um, you know, more, more understanding. So, you know, and... Um, creates more vibrant neighborhoods in many cases. And so there's, you know, there's opportunity here uh, for everyone. And, and I think, I think that's, um, you know, um, a real opportunity. It's controversial. People are really up, up, upset about this possibility, but I, I, in my I know, opinion, I, I know they are. And it, and it really frustrates me because I grew up obviously in metropolitan area, very diverse neighborhoods, yeah. very diverse populations. When I came here, I was stunned yeah I looked around and I was just stunned because I didn't see anybody that that I, I could identify with mm -hmm. so I understand how people who and I mean I'm not black mm -hmm. but I don't really identify as white either so I I 
felt like I, I understand how people feel alienated and we've got to come together and by continuing to keep these neighborhoods and then these McMansions on, yeah. on estates, they're using up so much land for nothing. Yeah. I, I'm very, very opposed to some of that. And I read these yeah. articles in the paper and I think, wow, the city council always has its work cut out for us. But then Absolutely. there's some on the city council that aren't very supportive too. Well, people are people have different opinions. Um, there, there's, um, I, I do believe, generally speaking, on the council, people across the board are, are trying to do what they think is right and trying mm-hmm. to... So, so there's legitimate debate here. Um, I happen to fall on one side of that debate. That um, and uh, but it, it's um, so so yeah. They've got their work cut cut out for them. In my mm-hmm. opinion, we have to create space for the missing middle of of housing. Yes, you know? we do. And um, and uh, we have to do it in a way that actually is integrated into our communities, as opposed to separated or isolated or segregated. Now you've already mentioned some of the federal programs that affect housing, but how have 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 you seen any drastic changes with the current administration we have in the White House? Has anything trickled down to help or hinder, or is anything happening? <laughs> yeah. Um, so probably the biggest uh, overt thing that we've seen uh, is a change in um, HUD's policy um, around transgender rights and transgender access and so we've seen some um, uh, we saw a lot of movement under the Obama administration uh, towards protecting um, people who are, who are transgender mm-hmm. and uh, working to uh, say that they have housing rights uh, against discrimination um, based on um, uh, protection around uh, gender in, in our our uh, protection clauses, equal protection clauses, and and so, um, so uh, the Trump administration has basically kind of let that go. Has started to ignore that. So that's very public and very impactful on uh, you know a highly marginalized population. Mm-hmm. There's a there is a significant number of um, overlap between the transgender and homeless population. Yes. Um, disproportional. Um, and uh, one of the things we've seen too is that actually in terms of number of people who are murdered every year uh, based on their identity, uh, homeless people and transgender people both have about the same number of people that are murdered every year based on their, uh, based on their situation and circumstance. And uh, I don't know what the data is, but I'd be really interested to see the data around whether there's a lot of that is an intersection between uh, people who are homeless and transgender. Oh, I'm sure. It's, oh, there are a lot of homeless transgender, or they have been. Yeah, I'm just. I'm wondering about the murder rates, uh, uh, and and my guess is, even though I don't have numbers, my guess is that that a lot of that uh, is is overlapping. Uh, well, there's there. so much divisiveness now. I mean, we've always been divided. Whenever you bring people together that are of different nationalities, different religions, different philosophies, different colors, there's going to be some friction yeah. until people come together and try to accept and understand one another. But I think there's so much divisiveness now coming from the top that people are just, those people who are inclined to harm others yeah. are thinking that it's almost their right and their duty to do this. They can do what they want. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly the uh, extremist violence uh, is pretty terrifying, and uh, particularly what we're seeing lately is the, uh, a, a significant uptick, uptick in the extremist violence of, um, 
of uh, white right wing white supremacists. Right, uh, they've always people. been there, but now they feel like they're really bound and determined to live up to their I guess their reputation. I guess they've been given free yeah, reign. Something, something's emerging. I mean, it's again, like you said, it's uh, it's always been there, and we're seeing an uptick in it as well. Um, well, I guess you know, as the population increases. It, it increases in each group of people. There are more white supremacists, there are more black people, there are more white people, there are more everything. You know, it's all exponentially increased. And I think they feel empowered now. And I, and I think, I do think a lot of us are, are in peril a bit. Yeah, there's, and it's there's certainly, more certainly the homeless, transgender yeah. people who stand out are going to be victimized easily. Yeah. Easily, yeah. they don't have a, pro- a protective net around them like those of us that live in neighborhoods or houses or whatever. Yeah, one of the things that I kind of sometimes make a parallel to is um, on the the uh, gates of Auschwitz uh, yeah. are words Ar- Arbeit macht frei, which mean um, work shall set you free, and um, and uh, it's interesting to how um, one of the Nazi ideologies is, is the core of that your uh, productivity is what defines you. That, mm-hmm. that if you are a uh, noble working person um, that you're good but if you're taking from or stealing from or which is what they often uh, you know charged people with disabilities, Jewish people, others that you're kind of taking from the, the hard-working people um, that uh, that you need to be, you know, you're the enemy, and obviously you need to be exterminated was the full extent of that. Yes, I lost and, family in the Holocaust. Oh, <laughs> oh, what a horror. Yes, and those who say it didn't happen infuriates me. I have to try to stay calm and rational yeah. when they say that. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's interesting to me to see a, a modern-day parallel of yelling, you know, Arbeit macht frei, um, uh, Work shall set you free. Seeing um, an interesting parallel today with people shouting, "Get get a job out their window or their car!" At somebody who's uh, asking for money on a street corner. Well, then there's this attitude about jobs too. Like, and I'm I'm I'm, I'm generalizing here because I know a lot of factory workers that are great people and all that. But if 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 you're if you worked in a factory and your father worked in a factory and your mother worked in a factory, whatever, and then somebody else doesn't, they work in an office. Well, they don't see that as equal. Mm-hmm. They don't see that an administrative job can be as important, or maybe the administrative job is why there is the factory job. They don't see the inner inner connection, the yeah, inner I mean, linkage of, between everybody's jobs are important. Sure, sure, yeah, and I I think I think even taking that a little further, um, I think it's interesting how we generally view a humanity's a person's worth by their productivity. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's your whatever you contribute to the system is what makes. But isn't that worthy. capitalism? Well, uh, uh, certainly of... fascism. I'll I'll say that. Yes. Um, and it's certainly a core of fascism that you mm-hmm. are defined by your productivity, and your perceived productivity, um, and uh, and so seeing some of that hallmark in our own society that you are not worth anything except that you produce in the way I think you should produce is uh, pretty terrifying it is you know and, it is um and uh so and i you know i actually wrote about this on on social media today something about there was this argument about people the economy and whether the economy is doing well or not and 
I saw some were saying some, some were saying <laughs> yeah some were saying uh, that it's doing really well and you're it's all it's your fault if you're not doing well and some were saying I'm working five jobs so I'm glad there's lots of jobs I have five of them that's because and, capitalism uh, to me creates competition it, which yeah. creates an unnecessary competition between daily workers yeah whereas I mean, every what everybody's doing is important and contributes sure and but capitalism kind of takes that away like my job's more important than your job yeah. And so then you set up another division. Well, it's, you know, some, some again, this goes to, some use this fancy word, meritocracy. Mm-hmm. The idea that um, we're better because we earned it. And, um, I, you know, I, I, I just saw these people arguing back and forth as all people that were not in an economy that was not serving them very well. <laughs> And uh, I said, basically, this is a group of people who, you know, are, it's like, you know, um, uh, where the rich have taken nine, you know, there's 10 cookies and the rich have taken nine and we're all fighting over the last one, you know, and, and, uh, and blaming each other for, for the last, that last cookie and why we can't all get that last cookie. And, um, and so I just, you know, uh, recognize that we're in an economy that is not promoting broad-based prosperity mm-hmm. it's getting worse not better you know and even though we we have these subtle things of a low a low unemployment rate we don't have prosperity emerging we don't have people doing better we don't have people able to afford a home health care is becoming more expensive education is becoming more expensive um, all the basics you know that that help us do better are uh are becoming more and more out of our reach, and that's not getting better. And that didn't get a much better under uh, the Democratic administration. And do you think it's intentional? Oh, absolutely. I do too. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, no, that's documented. That's not yes, even it's intentional. That's a yeah. There, there's been active uh, push by uh, people in wealth to create create policies that promote their wealth and when uh, corporations at the became people, of everyone else, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, even even more than that, you know, just just the the whole change in philosophy around taxation and um, the you know shifting from public to private and this constant emphasis of privatizing everything um, just takes away from it's more like privateering, you know. They're really mm-hmm. kind of you know they're taking they're taking away from uh, from people uh, and. Uh, democratic control um, over over our educational systems, you know, even even our military now. They're talking about. I'm very uh, upset black, about Blackwater and trying oh, yes. to well, create, create was, a mercenary, mercenary yes. army, and it's it's uh, the, the more and more people talk about privatizing being better, or privateering being better. But I'm a big fan that the core core needs of our society have to have democratic. Uh, Accountability. I've know. always been a supporter of big government. It has to be a democratic big government, mm-hmm. which it's not. Yeah. I'm very, very opposed to all these charter schools yeah. and um, and underfunding public education because I think I think children have to be socialized into their culture. And when you take all these children in, in little groups, well, you're creating even more division mm-hmm. because you've got children in one school that are learning one thing and one over here that are learning another and everybody's divided and nobody's socialized in the broader culture and, and meeting people outside of those groups. And I, I think it's all very terrifying. Yeah, and they're not under, again, they're generally not under democratic influence or control. They're no. generally not subject, subjected to uh, the same kind of uh, protections. They're generally... Uh, 
charter schools generally are not, you know, people talked about giving a, giving a lift up to people of color or people in poverty, but generally charter schools serve people who are, who are wealthier and whiter. And so, you know, so it's not working. It's not doing what some people have talked about. And some people say it's, you know, they're better schools and we're, we're, no, but they're we're not. not, and they're not. They're not know, meeting so. even basic educational yeah. standards in a lot of cases. Yeah, so I think we can still, we should, you know, I think it's it's good to look at innovation, you know, and, and that's the argument for charter schools. But we still need to hold uh, that to democratic control and democratic influence, mm-hmm. and um, the people need to have their voice in that and how that works, and we need to make sure that they're fair and equitable. You know, you shouldn't get an advantage because you're taking easier students or students that are more well off or um, you know have less obstacles in their lives and then suddenly look hey I'm doing great because I'm working with you know um, people that are better off and that's uh, that's not a good measurement of success. Do you think there's a direct connection between a lack of educational advantage for what for one reason or another and homelessness? Um, yes and no. I think it's, I think it's bigger and broader than that. Um, uh, you know, homelessness in many ways, again, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a product of an economy that's not working for many people for the most part. Um, but, uh, some of the more severe homelessness is, um, like virtually every single person, uh, who's experiencing chronic homelessness went through some kind of massive trauma mm-hmm. uh, in their background, in their, in their past. I mean, I, I, I basically don't, you know, th- there's a rare case where I see like a severe, somebody with a severe mental illness mm-hmm. who um, grew up in a, in a family that was, you know, basically hel- healthy and, and caring. Um, but, uh, but for the most part, um, people have experienced just extraordinary amounts of trauma and, uh, that leads to some of the worst cases of homelessness we see. I was going to, I remember back in what was it, in the 80s when they closed all the mental hospitals. Yeah. And I was absolutely appalled because I had been working in that field. And I was absolutely appalled, not that mental hospitals were doing a necessarily perfect job. They were taking a lot of money and not really serving people because they were too massive and there weren't enough uh, psychiatrists and whatever. It just wasn't being, uh, it, it wasn't functioning. But to close them. Yeah. And then put the, the, the responsibility of mental health care on the mentally ill to make sure that they get treatment and that they follow yeah. up on their treatment is totally irresponsible, totally, yeah. totally destructive uh, for society and for the individual. Yeah. And it hasn't worked. I think yeah. that is no, a, a large area of the homeless are mentally ill, as you say. And I, yeah. I think that's, that's one reason I think people are afraid of them. They think, oh, well, they're crazy and they're going to kill us all. And there are very few mentally ill people that are that violent um, oh, overall. Yeah. I mean, uh, that, yeah. I mean, you know, people, again, you know, I, I understand the fears. People, uh, some people who are experiencing, well, let's put it this way. There's a lot of people who are experiencing homelessness that are walking around the streets that nobody would recognize. Mm-hmm. You know, I know them because I work with them every day and I, I recognize them, but most people wouldn't even know. So I think that's important to know is that who you see uh, represents a small portion of who actually is homeless right. uh, and who we see as a community. But um, but uh, when we get into, you know, uh, certainly, you know, people who are experiencing homelessness, especially chronic homelessness, and 
uh, some are certainly connected with, uh, you know, involved in some crimes and that kind of thing that make people nervous. Generally, it's annoying, petty crimes that they're involved with. So, you know, small theft, uh, public intoxication, trespassing, um, disorderly conduct, things like that, that are nuisances, you know, to, for lack of better words, they're annoying to people, they're, just, they're, just, they're uncomfortable. Well, people don't um, understand if you don't have a place to go, where else are you going to be? Well, and you know, and there's <laughs> other challenges too, just like you said, severe, um, you know, severe mental illness and certainly severe substance use disorder can create behavioral challenges and mm -hmm. things like that. But that's the thing is like generally those are minor things and so, so they're annoying, but they're not necessarily the, they're not murder or rape or sure. all the horrible right. things that we think about when we're so, or massive, you know, theft, you know, that well, we we're finding about a we lot talk of... about what, what really scares us as a community. Mm -hmm. We're finding we a lot of sexual abuse and yeah. it's happening right in, in a so-called normal homes. So. Yeah, it's what happens in the home. And professionals and... Yeah, you know, generally speaking, you, right. if you're sexually abused, you know you're a sexual abuser. Well, we're kind of running short of time, and I've really appreciated listening to you, talking with you. I have to say for you, how do you handle all this? How do you manage all this? You're the executive director. I mean, everything, I'm, the buck stops with you, so to speak. Yeah. Um, how do you, because you seem so calm. Every time I've ever <laughs> seen you, you seem so calm and peaceful. Yeah. And. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, uh, it, it, I, the job is hard. It's difficult. It's difficult for all our employees. We're uh, constantly engaged with trauma on a daily basis, and that can cause uh, trauma in us, something called secondary trauma. So so we have to be attentive to that and careful about that. We have to work with that. Um, we have to be good to ourselves. Um, but there's no there's no magic bullet. Um, uh, for me, I'm, I'm very uh, convinced that... Um, duration and long-term leadership can help an organization thrive and do well and so I intentionally do not overwork and mm -hmm. you know do not uh, um, you know uh, push myself too hard um, you know I try to leave my work at work um, but also I think there's something about for me uh, that that um, that I, I I love what I do I mm -hmm. love uh, the people I work with um, that I I care about them. I enjoy them. Um, I love their stories. I'm fascinated by them, and so, uh, so there's there's a constant for me engagement of recognizing that not only are um, we helping them, but they're actually helping me. They're changing me. They're making me a better person, and um, I welcome that. I invite that. I I, I, well, you I certainly, embrace that. You certainly are doing something right because when I walked in here today, this place is vibrant. I mean, I wasn't sure what to expect, never having been here. And, I mean, I, I know that all the people that are here are probably homeless. They're here for, you know, one reason or another. But friendly, vibrant, active. I thought, wow, the energy here, it's very positive and upbeat. And so it's nothing negative about it at all. So if we can go away with any kind of message at all for the public and listeners is that um, this is a positive place. Mm -hmm. You, you yeah. and all your staff and everybody that volunteers are doing great work and keeping it going. Your energy is amazing. Well, thanks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, things happen. We work with people and we try to, we're, we're a de-escalation oriented organization. So we always try to bring things into a calmer space and help people deal with conflict in a safe way. So 
that's a big part of what we do, but we also really try to be a positive place for people and, um, and uh, that we take pride in that and um, we want people to, to thrive and do well and enjoy their lives. It's important, not just survival, you know, we also need to enjoy our lives. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking time out of what I know you have a very busy day, um, every day I'm sure. Um, I've been speaking with uh, Reverend Forrest Gilmore, who is the Executive Director of the Shalom Center here in Bloomington, Indiana, doing great works, he and all the people that work with him. So thank you very much. Thank you. Good to be with you.